Well, this is the fourth and final week of our month-long missions conference. We've had a wonderful time in the Lord and looking forward to a great day today. I just want to remind you again, uh, you will see it in the bulletin, that we have two families that we have sent out to the mission field who are home on furlough now, Craig and Shelley Schaefer and Kent and Jenny Schaefer. There are projects that we are raising money for all month long. So this is the last week to be able to give to that. And so just wanna uh, bring that to your attention. And then uh, as we've been doing all month long, we encourage you after the service to head to the gymnasium. And if you're visiting with us this morning, when you go out of the auditorium into the foyer, you'll see an elevator, the hallway there, just go all the way to the end, turn left, and you'll be at our gym. That is where our speaker will be and his display table. So if you wanna to talk to Bob after the service, um, you will do so in the gymnasium. Also, our book tables are there, all kinds of great missionary books that Diana Van Orsdell has ordered and put together. And if you haven't had a chance to go down there and look at those, I strongly encourage you to do that. She does just an absolutely marvelous job of putting that together every year. And we like to encourage people to go down there. Great reads for you and your family members. That's also where our missions closet table and tool shower table where we're taking uh, gifts throughout the month are. We also have coffee and cookies there. Just looking forward to a great time of fellowship. Well, this morning, on this last Sunday of our conference, our speaker is Dr. Bob Osborne. He is the executive director of the Wilberforce Academy in St. Paul, Minnesota. The academy provides advanced Christian leadership training for international and American students. Bob is a longtime friend of John and Karen Leaf, and that's how we originally got to know Bob. He was part of our missions conference, some of you may remember. He was part of our missions conference back in 2010, and we are grateful today to have him back again. Bob, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Pastor Tim. It's a pleasure to, to be with you. Seven years ago when I was here, I had hair. So that's changed. <laughs> but uh, also about a year after I was here, in the year 2011, your own Joel Morgan uh, was living with my, uh, two of my, at the time, single sons. And uh, in fact, just when he left their house, he, he moved here to St. John's. And uh, he got married and uh, they got married, so uh, this has turned out uh, quite nicely for all of us. All right, let's, let's begin with prayer. Shall we do that? Father, my simple prayer now is that you would be able to, would, and I know you're able, but that you would, in fact, uh, calm any distractions or fears or concerns that we bring with us to this sanctuary this morning, those distractions from family, perhaps work, uh, political issues, whatever those distractions, I pray that we can gather together and engage your word together uh, and that your spirit will teach us. I believe that I'm just a a vessel to communicate, Father, but may your spirit do the teaching. 
I pray in your son's name. Amen. So it was 1952, and I was a young boy of two years old, and I was wandering about, as young boys do, when they're on a rocky farm of 40 acres. In our case, it was a, a small farm south of Onstead, and in case you've never heard of Onstead, and I doubt you have, it was actually southeast of Jackson, Michigan. And it was in that very same year that J.B. Phillips wrote a, a book called Your God is Too Small. And what he was worried about was that it seemed that in the wake of, of modern life, with all of its institutions, its government bureaucracies, all of its ways of functioning, it seemed like God was diminishing. And we were losing a sense of God's grandeur. And so he feared, and we should always fear, that if our God is not great enough, if our God is too small in our own eyes, we will be sucked away by secularism and all the associated forces. Um, John Piper, who is the pastor of Bethlehem, who was the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, has a similar conclusion, but he takes it one step farther. He said, if your God is too small, your vision for mission will be too small. And that's particularly relevant, isn't it, today uh, in this mission conference. And I would like then to, to take that idea yet one step farther. It's not only that we risk having a God that's too small. It's not only that we risk, therefore, that our sense of mission of what God wants to do in this world may be too small, but that I think we actually risk having a too small vision for God's church. And I suggest today that if we had a larger vision, what I call the Apostle Paul's audacious vision for the church, an audacious vision that, that I'm going to label this morning, model nation. I'll explain that later. The big view that I think the Bible presents and that the Apostle Paul uh, lays out for us in Ephesians chapter 3 is of uh, the church being a model nation. That's far greater, I will suggest, than many of the church visions that many of us have. So what are some of the two small versions of the church that, that probably are wandering around, whether on a 40-acre farm like I grew up on, or perhaps somehow dangling around in your mind today? Well, let's consider these five two small versions that I've at least identified uh, in my reflections and having been a believer for 40 some years I think I, I've seen a lot in this process one too small version of the church is that it's a, a culture warrior center a, a lot of today's millennials uh, actually have this idea that the religious right is full of angry people and they come together in evangelical churches like First Baptist of St. John's, Michigan. And they fume and they fumble and they get angry. 
And that's a caricature that fills social media tragically today. But it's obvious that is a too small vision of God's church, isn't it? Another too small vision is that of the church as a secret society. We were having a discussion at John and Karen Leaf's house last night about this very idea among a whole range of topics that we discussed. But one of them was the fact that, that for much of the 20th century, especially from roughly 1925 to, to 1975, as evangelical Christians, followers of Christ, felt overwhelmed by the the sort of the black hole of mainline Protestantism as it gave up the authority of Scripture and as it began to embrace science wholeheartedly. Um, we then withdrew into a kind of fundamentalism, a secret society of fundamentalism, and, and uh, that was reinforced at the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 when, when uh, 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 an attorney... Uh, a famous one, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he made great fun of one of our, our former presidential candidates, William Jennings Bryan, who only two days later died of a heart attack. It was a tragic and, as, time, and it was a sense of withdrawing. So a too small version of the church as a secret society, fundamentalism withdrawn from the rest of society and culture. So it's not only that we have the idea that the church may be a culture warrior center, that's a caricature, I believe, or it's a secret society. There's a very common one out there that's a too small version of the church that you should be uh, very aware of because it's been around us for much of our lives. And that's simply the idea that the church is a religious club. It's where nice people get together and they, they say nice, pious things and they smile and they organize you know, nice things for to help people and they eventually dissipate into nothingness. That's what mainline Protestantism, about which I just spoke a few minutes ago, has become. Um, it has become no longer a center of, largely a, a center of vital uh, Christian faith. It's a nice religious club where you, you say platitudes and then you go home, life unchanged. Uh, but it is a power, still a powerful force, but at the same time, it is a declining force. And what we now know from research is that churches like St. John's First Baptist, who held on to a deep and profound faith and love in, for Jesus Christ, and they trusted God's word and really believed that this is true and without error, these are the churches that have grown, and your churches, by just looking at you this morning, it's very real evidence that, that it's alive and Christ is working. But you'll see in the, our communities, the mainline Protestant churches are getting smaller and smaller year after year after year. So they have killed themselves with a too small vision of the church as a religious club. But then there's a fourth vision that's too small for the church, and that's that it's an ethnic haven. I come from Minnesota, and uh, that's the land of Scandies, right? Swedes and Norwegians and some Danes thrown in for good measure, and we love them. We have, you know, all the uh, things like uh, all the radio programs and so forth that you recognize and for which we're so famous. 
But the reality is when those people came to America, as did many of your ancestors, they sought out churches that had people like them and that spoke their home native language. And so they became ethnic havens. The problem is that when those people who, that is our ancestors, found churches as ethnic havens, their kids, the second generation, said, I don't want any part of this. And so those churches as ethnic havens, another too small vision of the church, they became inward focused. They only saw mission as to people like them. So you see, there are a lot of different ways of having a too small church. And there's one more, though, a too small vision of the church that is very dominant today and one that I, I'm critical of is the idea of the church as a seeker-friendly center. Now, that, if you know anything about the seeker-sensitive movement, uh, in many respects, it's a movement that I do truly appreciate. It's, it's a movement infused and filled with a desire to evangelize neighbors. But in order to do that, uh, it has chosen to embrace pop culture. I'm not against pop culture, by the way. Just because of my age doesn't mean I didn't understand and, and appreciate the Beatles. But <laughs> only old enough people can appreciate that one. But um, um, the reality is that, that they have used these pop culture methods to, to attract people in their churches but then when it comes to discipling people, how do you disciple people with methods that are, are from Nashville and Hollywood rather than from Jerusalem? That's a real problem, and it's, it's a problem that still haunts the seeker-friendly movement. And I suggest that though they have large, large churches, they really have a too small vision of the church. You can turn now to a passage that I'd like you to look at ever so briefly in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This will be a lead-up to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. But you'll see in Matthew 16, 18, which is the first reference that Jesus makes to the church and where he uses the, the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia, that right away... Jesus has a, a big vision for his church. So in Matthew 16, 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, of course, referring to Apostle Peter. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I'd like you to prepare to raise your hand if this fits you. Hands up. Tell me. If you have always thought that this verse said that we as the church need to hunker down and be protected from the forces of hell as they attack us, raise your hand. I'd love to see if any of you, like me, actually believe that that's what that passage taught. Well, hopefully you are much more biblically than I am, but I have to admit to you that I went through seminary and after seminary believing that this passage was saying that, that Satan's forces were attacking the church and we had to hunker down 
to protect ourselves against the evil that Satan was going to try to introduce amongst us and destroy us. But that's not what the passage says, does it? In fact, it says that, that the church will assault hell and Satan's great work of deceiving the nations. The church will assault hell with love and truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is on the offensive. Hell is on the defensive. And, and that, of course, when I go back to that, one of those five, two small versions of the church, that of the church is a secret society, that was part of the mistake that the old fundamentalists made. They saw everybody attacking them, and so they hunkered down. But that's not God's vision for the church. So we are sent out. We are the, the church that's on a mission to assault the lies and the destruction of hell. So in Wilberforce Academy, which I'll be talking about much more tonight, uh, we, are, we are training mostly international students and a few American students to, to courageously, creatively, intelligently, and skillfully go into their societies and apply a Christian worldview to the problems that are facing their society. And I've just come back from Africa where I met with four of my mentees over the last couple weeks, and, and I'll be sharing some of those stories tonight. But the big vision, the biblical vision of the church that I think is best captured in Ephesians chapter 3 uh, is what I call again, the model nation. Now, let me just say a couple things about this so that you understand where I'm going with this. First of all, when I refer to the church, there are two ways of thinking about it, and I think about it in both ways. The church is both individuals, individual followers of Jesus Christ, who, who make up the body of Christ what we know as the universal church. Each of us as followers of Christ is part of that universal church. But then there's the second meaning of the word church, and that's that we're local churches like St. John's First Baptist. Local churches that, that uh, emulate and, and reflect Jesus Christ to their Communities. Now, there's one more thing before we get into Ephesians chapter 3, which is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. When I talk about the idea of model nation, the church is a model nation, that's not familiar language to you, no doubt. But what I mean is that the, the church is to demonstrate to the, to the watching world to the larger society, the very, the very character, the very essence, the very attributes that any society should want in order to flourish. So it works with the assumption that the world about us whether we're talking about the rest of the city of St. John or, or the state of Michigan or 
the United States or the world, the assumption is that they don't have the answers and that they need to look at the church, both the universal church and the local church, as a model of how to organize their affairs. Now, give me one more second on this idea before we get into Ephesians 3. The working assumption that I bring to this passage is that Israel, God's chosen people, was designed in part to be a model nation to the rest of the nations of the world. They did not know, they do not know how to organize their affairs. I just came back, as I said, from, from Africa a week ago. I witnessed this reality with my own eyes. The nations don't know how to organize their affairs. And I'm going to share with you later in the sermon how, in fact, historically, the church at times in history has been a model to show the nations how to organize their affairs. That's the big vision of the church that the Bible teaches. That's what we're going to find as we look at Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's audacious vision for the church. So let's focus on verse 10 of chapter 3 in Ephesians. So that, and this is in the middle of a sentence, unfortunately, it's a little bit awkward. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. By the way, in my reading of the Bible, the, the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. This is the only passage that I can find in the Bible that uses the Greek word ekklesia and talks about the purpose of the church. So if, if I'm right about that, we ought to be really honing in on this passage. It's the only one I can find that it gives you a sense of, of the purpose of the church. It is, to repeat in verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So, in order to see how this passage is situated, let me, let me now uh, start in chapter 1 in a very brief overview of Ephesians. You'll see how the argument unfolds. So what Paul is doing in Ephesians is he's, he's enamored with the grand purposes of God. So it's not surprising when, when somebody's writing and saying, your purposes are wonderful, they are magnificent, they are beyond imagination, which we will see that word used at the end of chapter 3. It's not surprising that Paul in his effusiveness would say the purpose of the church is grand and magnificent and marvelous, much bigger than we ever thought before. So what he does in chapter 1, he says that God's grand purposes are all encompassed in Jesus Christ. 
and he, he just he, he breaks forth in, a, in literally a paean of praise in chapter 1, and I want to focus your attention on verse 23 uh, in chapter 1, where he said that he is head over the, all things to the church, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Right there, I wouldn't even have to get to chapter 3, verse 10. <laughs> his body, the fullness of him, Jesus, who fills all in all. I mean, if you really begin to let these, this verse soak into your soul, you begin to say, wow. You begin to say, I don't know if I can take this. Who fills all in all. So there, you get real hints here that God, Paul has this magnificent idea of the church. Well, then you go to chapter 2. And what Paul is trying to address there is the question, if Christ fills all in all, and that is the nature of his church over which he is the head, then how is it going to work if Gentiles are not part of that church? Now, here's some background so you get the, you get the context of where we're, what we're trying to talk about here. The, the problem is that when the church was started, it was Jewish. Uh, unless any of you have a, a Jewish background, and, and actually some of us may because a lot of our Jewish ancestors converted to Christianity as a way to avoid being killed, uh, tragically. But unless you have any Jewish blood in you, uh, there wouldn't be any of us that have a shot. And we wouldn't be here this morning if it wasn't for the fact that, that God made it possible uh, for Gentiles to be part of God's plan. And so what Paul says in chapter 2 is that God has this great plan to include Gentiles because his body fills all in all, and that has to include Gentiles as well as Jews. That, by the way, was a pretty radical idea uh, for Jews of that time. So in verse 13 of, of chapter 2, for example, uh, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You Gentiles who had no hope, you've been brought near by Christ. But then chapter 3, chapter 3, which is where we're headed with this whole thing. So if Gentiles are going to be included in the body of Christ, which was a radical idea at the time, then how is it going to happen? Well, Paul says, God has made me an apostle to the Gentiles. And I bring good news to the Gentiles. And in the process of bringing that good news... I unfold a mysterious plan. So look with me at verse 9. Some of this language gets difficult here. In verse 9, he says, I am to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Change that to mysterious plan. A lot easier to understand that. That's what he means. 
My job is to bring to light for everyone the mysterious plan hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then in verse 10, which is our passage today, he explains what that is. So God has this marvelous plan to do something that he's never done before. Now, what we've done so far is we've taken a telescope to, to look at Ephesians to try to get the setting for this idea of this audacious vision for the church. Now let's take a microscope and let's look with a microscope in depth at Ephesians 3, verse 10. And we're going to ask four questions of the passage. The first question, when you look at verse 10 of chapter 3, is... What does the term manifold wisdom of God mean? It's not that thing, guys, that we see on top of our engines. As a young boy, he was taught to try to repair cars, and I had no gifts whatsoever for repairing anything. They should have kept my hands away from any vehicle. I always made them worse. But I learned early on about manifolds. I can't really tell you to this day exactly what part is the manifold, but some of you guys, you rodheads as they call it, uh, would certainly know what a manifold is. That's not what Paul is talking about here. <laughs> the, the term manifold means multifaceted. So now let's look at the passage again, and let's use the word multifaceted as we read it. So that through the church, verse 10, the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known. Hmm. That means if we take God seriously, God has wisdom about all domains of reality. Automobiles, since we were just talking about that. Homemaking. Agriculture, fertilizers. I'm staying in the agro-liquid building right now, so I appreciate what fertilizers do and the money they make selling those kind of advanced fertilizers. But it's also biology, accounting, computer science, politics, sociology, Anthropology. You get the picture? No, we have to be serious. Do we believe this or not? That's, that's the thing. Through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God will be made known to, to the rest of the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms. Wow. I'm not exaggerating when I say that because I really believe we ought to say, wow. Here's another way to look at this. It's not just that God gives theological wisdom and religious knowledge through the church. That's another way to think about what I just said. So you're asking me, you mean with your doctorate, and my doctorate's in education of all things, 
You mean with your doctorate you really believe that all these domains that we study in universities, that God has multifaceted, unlimited wisdom in all these areas? Yes, I do. Wholeheartedly. Now the reason why we may be pulling back from this is because we, we've been raised in a world where we were taught from the big, earliest time that theology is one kind of knowledge. That's what pastors like Tim do and people like me who are also trained in seminaries and your other pastors. And then we try to get a bit of that through our Bible studies. And then over here is this grand area that's about the real world, we call it. We study in universities and we, we learn our anthropology, we learn our accounting, we learn our science and chemistry and physics, and, and we learn about education, we learn about philosophy. That's the real world over there. But my friends... That idea that there's two different domains of knowledge, that is a very, very bad idea that a, two, that a philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant uh, circulated 200 years ago. It's a very bad idea. And I ask you this morning to consider rejecting it. Through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God, theology, and all these other areas... Now, you still must be thinking, where is this guy going? And you should be, because there's so much more here. Now, the second question um, that we want to ask as we put a microscope on this particular verse is how in the world does this multifaceted wisdom get displayed through the church? That's a pretty obvious question, isn't it? And we ought to be asking it. Now what I need to do now is I need to get you to, to think back to the world of 2,000 years ago. There were no universities 2,000 years ago. There were only, there was Plato and Aristotle and of course Socrates who was Plato's teacher and Plato was Aristotle's teacher. There was a couple Romans by the name of Cicero and Seneca, and there was Confucius in China. Um, some of their wisdom was good, and some of it was pretty lousy, we now know. But that's all they had. And so when Paul was writing this, people would have thought, yes, there is really no other particularly good sources of authority other than these few philosophers that we've heard about, maybe never ever studied. And so maybe God is going to do something remarkable through the church. Um, I'm going to talk more about this toward the end of my message, but let me, let me suggest three ways that God's multifaceted wisdom can be known through the church. Number one, it can be known through each of us as we act as members of the body of Christ in our work world, whatever our calling. 
we are displaying that knowledge, whether we've gained it through the secular university or through some other source, ultimately it owes itself to our almighty God. Secondly, we can, we can as a church, demonstrate God's multifaceted wisdom through Christian agencies like Wilberforce Academy, but there are thousands, if not millions, of other ones, including Beacon of Hope, which we'll talk about uh, as your agency uh, later on. And then thirdly, we can demonstrate the multifaceted wisdom of God through the way we as a church organize ourselves, through the way that we, we construct our affairs, the way we treat each other. The world can look on and say, this is how we ought to do society. We learn about society from that ideal society, that model nation, the church. So our mission, then, is to show that God is wiser and that his is the path to human flourishing. Now, the last question, the third question I want to take you to in this passage as we put a microscope to it is, what does it mean here in the end of verse 10 that this wisdom is made known to the rulers and authorities of, of the heavenly realms? There are two possible answers. One is that uh, the, the heavenly realms and the, angel, the rulers and authorities refers to angelic powers who look on with awe at what God does through his church. The other answer is that the term rulers and authorities in heavenly realms is a metaphor for powerful leadership. For example, when we say, today the White House announced, what do we mean? Do we actually think that this white building in Washington, D.C. has a microphone that comes out of it? We actually mean that it's a, it's a metaphor for presidential power. And I actually think that's what this is referring to. It's a metaphor for presidential power. Or, more broadly, uh, power in larger society. So that Thus, what this passage is saying, and then I'm going to begin to wrap this up as I talk about the difference this makes. This is saying that, that the church demonstrates God's multifaceted wisdom to the rulers and authorities, whether mayors, governors, uh, presidents, uh, whatever. Now, the difference this makes is shown throughout history. For example... And this is where we're going to begin to drill down into to the lives that you live. Did you realize that it wasn't until the 11th or 12th century that there were any universities? That's when universities came in. And they were all Christian. And they were all Christian until the middle of the 19th century. So in fact, the church was, until the middle of the 19th century, by all accounts, demonstrating the multifaceted wisdom of God through an agency of the church, that is, the university. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that churches began to, uh, excuse me, churches, yes, too, but mainly universities began to secularize. And now we assume that's the way reality should be, but that was not God's intent. 
Did you know that the founders of America actually learned about how to organize us as a federal society, which I don't have time to explain today because I'm going over time here. But in fact, they learned that from the Presbyterian Church. Did you know that our separation of powers, that idea came because our founders believed that original sin was a very real reality. Did you know that uh, virtually every one of our founders believed that, that as a republic, we would not stand, we would not survive unless the people were virtuous and they believed that the only way to virtue was through Christian faith. In other words, they understood this idea that the multifaceted wisdom of God is demonstrated through his church. I wish I had more time to talk about other examples, but uh, William, William Wilberforce, our namesake, was this great... Uh, English parliamentarian who, with the Clapham community, and we, I have some copies of this for sale back at, and this tells the part of the story uh, back at my table. Um, they outlawed the slave trade and eventually slavery in Great Britain. It's a marvelous story of Christians who literally displayed the multifaceted wisdom of God. They were, in essence, a model nation that showed Great Britain how to organize its affairs. And our mentees through Wilberforce Academy are doing all kinds of marvelous work, which I'll tell, tell you about tonight. Not because I'm great. This is, that would be the wrong conclusion to draw from anything that I'm talking about. But because God is working through his church, in this case through individuals in the body of Christ, to demonstrate God's multifaceted wisdom. Now let me end by bringing one last thing into your realization that I think you need to realize. And that is, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, whether you realize it or not, at this point in human history, the secular authorities are running out of answers. The secular leaders are literally running out of answers. Yes, through our universities, we're training people who are constantly developing more wonderful technologies, and I give thanks for that. I don't, I still believe God deserves the glory for that, but I give thanks for that, whether it comes through secular institutions or the church. But when it comes to how we organize human affairs, we are now in our universities resorting to safe spaces, trigger warnings, and a whole host of methods to literally protect students from ideas that make them uncomfortable. And what happened at Middlebury College in Vermont a few weeks ago is just the tip of the iceberg. Our universities are getting to the point where they don't have any answers. They don't know what to do. They are tongue-tied. And I, I mean this with every ounce of my being. They do not have answers. And it's going to be up to us as the church to demonstrate God's multifaceted wisdom in resolving the problems that are plaguing our society and societies around the world. And as I said, I saw this, and I'll talk more about it tonight when I was in Africa. In Africa, the only trusted institution is the church. They literally look to the church for answers because they don't trust anybody else. So our authorities and our institutions are gasping for air, and it's our time. It's our time to pick up 
what God's just simply said we should have been doing all along to be a model nation. Not the five too small visions of the church, but this grand vision to be a model nation to the and an example that elicits and pr promotes and teaches and demonstrates the multifaceted wisdom of God. So if we have that grand vision for our church, we're going to have a grand mission, aren't we? As simple as that. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we can do no more than um, simply humble ourselves before you when we realize uh, the truth of what you've taught through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, Paul said it's, this goes beyond imagination, he says at the end of chapter 3, and it really is. We have just begun to scratch the surface, Father, but I pray for this church, these people, and churches around our world that we will catch this vision, that we have a grand mission to be a model nation that shows the nations of the world how to organize their affairs and how to promote human flourishing. We thank you in the wonderful and matchless name of your Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.